Welcome to The Journey of a Singer with me, your host, Nick Pritchard. This is the podcast where we dive into the fascinating and unique journeys of those individuals within the creative industry. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with food policy expert Gavin Wren. Gavin talks us through some pro tips and tricks for sustainable ways of eating. He shares his adventure working with National Geographic in Peru, sourcing the world's most expensive chocolate. We discover what it means to be working in the food policy industry and deep dive into ultra-processed foods and how they are dominating your supermarket shop. So sit back and enjoy the journey of a singer with today's marvellous guest, Gavin Wren. Gavin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've got to give a, a shout out before we start to my neighbour uh, because okay. he was the one that put me on to you. And mm. he's been watching loads of your videos. Okay. And he's quite into it. So he sent me a couple of questions that um, <laughs> we're going to hopefully ask you today. I've always been really interested in nutrition, mm. but I think I lack a lot of knowledge regarding what nutrition and food is doing to the planet as a whole, as opposed to mm. your body. I think I get too focused in mm. on what is the food doing to me? And it's mm. quite a selfish thing. In some ways, food is quite selfish. Mm. Nutrition as well, this is one of the little things that I have a little bugbear about as well. Nutrition is, I think by its definition, like modern nutrition science is quite reductive as well because mm. you've got to, you know, we drill down into the effects of individual things, but that kind of individual compounds and nutrients and stuff. So I think that also it kind of, that the practice of looking into nutrition leads us to sort of focus more narrowly rather than opening up more broadly as yeah. well. My dad used to say, he said when he grew up in this country, you could only get a certain number of fruits and veg. Mm. They'd never seen an avocado. They'd never seen a mango. Mm. And even the fruit that they did have was seasonal. You mm. get it in season. And the operations of getting those fruit was very sort of hand to mouth. And the, the transport system was almost small and local. And it seems like we've just grown into... We have everything and anything we want. Where is it coming from? What's the effect that that's having on the the operations of getting it to your table, making it last longer? Is it meant to be in this country? Should it be grown in another country? It seems as though that chain of things has changed so dramatically in the last few decades. That's why I find what, what you do very fascinating because I don't know a lot about the food policy mm. in this country and I don't think many people do and I think we just trust that the government is giving us the right things yeah. <laughs> and we trust that the companies are following yeah. the right business practices. Um, but what's yeah. your what's your take on where we're at now with, compared to where we were? Mm, well, there's a whole lot of topics in what you've just said. <laughs> I, I mean, the, one of the things that came to mind is obviously it's like we've opened Pandora's box. You can't really go backwards. So we've got this huge availability of food from all around the world and we can have mangoes and avocados and whatever we want pretty much whenever we want and one thing that we can't really do is go backwards from there we can't say okay we're going to stop having avocados because we can't grow them anywhere even vaguely near to the uk probably i don't know maybe southern europe you can but you know we can't just stop selling avocados so we can't go backwards in that respect so we have to kind of go forwards we have to think okay we are where we are now how can we modify change progress in sustainable ways ways that are better for the planet etc etc so sort of when we sort of hark back to sort of oh you know food my granny cooked and this kind of thing it's like that's obviously lovely but 
again, it's it's sort of sentimental. We can't sort of go back to those times. So there's there's, there's that's that's one thing. There there's a huge power play that exists, and it's quite complicated to unpick. You know, so every situation, every type of food, every type of product, etc., is different. But essentially, we've got a government who are quite scared of doing anything that would Im- that would change the food that you and I can eat. They don't they don't want to be accused of being nanny state. They don't want to do something that could restrict or change the food that's available because they generally get bad press. The tabloids go crazy about it, like the pasty tax and things like that. You know, small things. And obviously there's a general election in nine months or something like that. Yeah, so they don't want to be giving themselves that that name before the election exactly so they're they're kind of scared to really do anything that meaningful to be honest with you and then you've got businesses who um, you know I'm, I'm quite pro business most businesses are trying to achieve good things however at the same time businesses do respond well to level playing fields so when say a government or someone like that puts in policies or guidelines or restrictions or anything that makes it the same for everyone because then you've got you know so say when it comes to sustainability if the government actually took some more meaningful action that applied to all businesses in the uk sure you know it might take a bit of time to adjust to the to the changes but businesses respond well to a level playing field mm-hmm. everyone has to do the same thing that's fine it's fair it's mm-hmm. even and we do know from experience that if we uh, allow businesses to just sort of follow voluntary mm. activities that it's not always the most successful outcome. That's That's something that specifically, I've actually mentioned a couple of times on this podcast, things like the wheat industry. What I've said on this podcast is regurgitated information, and I'd mm. love to know if you have any insight into this. So what I've said is the wheat industry in America overproduced wheat, and the science then started to back up that wheat was good for you for breakfast, and they built this industry of having Wheaty Bix for breakfast, backed by scientists who said that it was the best thing for you for breakfast so that they could sell the surplus of wheat. And actually, maybe the science wasn't exactly there. And what that's done is over time interbred wheat so that now the gluten levels are higher than what we would normally process. And that's why we're seeing people with more gluten Mm. intolerances and those kind of things. Mm. I'll be honest, I've just regurgitated that (laughs) from two or three different opinions sure, yeah, that yeah. I've heard on maybe other podcasts. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and when it comes to things like science-backed policies towards government and and then apparently those papers were funded by these people that were pushing the wheat mm. uh, into cereals. Mm. When it comes to policy and science, is there any monetary association between, between some of these things? Mm. Well... There's an interesting example. So the wheat example, I'm not sure of the exact dynamics there, but in the case of uh, high fructose corn syrup, which we don't get so much of in the UK, and there's a good reason for that. I think we get most of our sugar from sugar beet. But in America, a lot of their sugar is high fructose corn syrup. And that is specifically because of government incentives and I think around the 80s maybe that specifically promoted the production of high fructose corn syrup which is why American Coca-Cola uses high fructose corn syrup as a sweetener, whereas in the UK, our Coca-Cola uses uh, either beet or cane sugar as a sweetener. So that's the difference. Like, there's this thing about on, on TikTok, you'll see like Mexican Coca-Cola because Mexico also uses cane sugar. But the point being is that 
when governments, in that case, take an, uh, take an idea, they're like, okay, we're going to promote a certain type of agriculture, a certain type of production for whatever reason it was. Again, can't remember the specifics, but they promoted it. It then has a huge knock-on effect on actually what the whole population eats. And that was a, that was a financially-led decision by the government. You know, that mm. was very specifically about, about money. Now, I mean, when it, when it comes to sort of uh, the UK and policy and financial interests... What we do know is obviously we do know that a lot of large businesses do meet with the government and we don't know what they're talking about. And we do know there's lobbying and we know there's all kinds of pressures that are put on the government to make decisions, whatever those decisions are, good, bad, whatever. There is pressure being put on them. And generally the businesses have greater resources to put pressure on a government because they have generally more money to yeah, to lobby and to do PR campaigns and this kind of thing, as opposed to, let's say, a PhD researcher at a university who has probably almost no funds, they're probably struggling mm. to pay their rent. So, you know, it, it's a very different dynamic, a PhD researcher or someone like that who could well be an expert in a certain field of one very specific part of food. They, you know, that, that researcher doesn't have the resources to really push their research onto anybody. Mm. It's, it's hard to know how much influence industry research, let's say, has and not all industry research is bad some industry research is very good i believe that unilever have um, discovered many things over the years that are sort of quite positive and and significant in terms of sort of how we've progressed as society so you know industry research isn't all bad so it's 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 a very murky kind of place to put we have that negative bias where when one of these things comes out it's exposed that maybe the research wasn't done in the best practice. That then bleeds into all the other research and you you automatically think that, oh, research is fixed or money backed or whatever. But really, we're probably talking about a small proportion. Mm. The reality is probably most scientists do their job how they were trained to do mm. their job mm. without the incentives. And mm. it's unfortunate that sometimes we have that misconception of um of research which I, th- I feel like at the moment on tiktok as well i'm seeing these things popping up about oh this thing that happened 20 years ago actually was backed by this or this or this mm. uh, there's a huge balance as well like there's in a lot of situations like we've seen it around uh aspartame sweetener the world health organization came out and recommended against consuming or using i can't remember mm-hmm. the wording exactly however the medical sort of level evidence seems to yeah. suggest that it's not actually that bad or there's a, there's a, there's some evidence saying it's not the best but there's also plenty of evidence saying actually it's probably okay as well so often these things aren't black and white either they're right. often like we think it's fine there's a little bit of evidence that says it might not be but there's more evidence that says it is okay so it's often in the balance and it's very easy as well i, I mean as consumers you know put my consumer hat on it's like i want a yes or no answer mm. is it safe or not it's like it's complicated. It is complicated <laughs> and people spend time. I mean, when I was at Exeter doing sports science, at the time that I was there, it was considered to be one of the best uh, research facilities mm. for sport and exercise sciences. And one of our modules was called, it was something like data analysis or basically you would analyze papers and determine how mm. good is this paper? Does it represent a 40 to 60 year old man or is it representative of a child or is that just because it says this is that necessarily applicable to you at home as the consumer and the one thing this uh, lecturer said that I'll, I'll never forget is 
he said he produced this paper on beetroots um, in terms of a supplementation and mm. they basically found a negligible effect at the time of increasing aerobic performance. Mm. And the media said, oh, would you mind if we uh, had a look at the paper and published a bit on it? And he was like, yeah, it's fine. Uh, here's mm. the paper. Uh, they published in the headline something like beetroot supplement increases performance by 50%. Mm. And he said, that's not what we d d determined. The yeah. 50% was one person in the study had improved their aerobic performance by 50%. Yeah. And he said, you know, as a scientist, I, I now no longer want to work with the media because yeah. it's my name under the paper that they're yeah. uh, putting yeah. on there. Or, or they take something where it's gone from half a percent to 0.75% and they're like, it's a 50% increase. It's <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, but it's from next to nothing to next to nothing. It's like, yeah. you know, and that's, they'll spin it however they can. And back to your uh, Spartan um, point, I think the research was showing they, they did it in rats and they did it on something like a thousand mm. times the levels that you would consume as a human yeah um yeah. so it, it it's digging deep into where wherever it's coming from but i think mm. so far as so far as food goes i recently saw that you did a, a no ultra processed oh yeah challenge for 30 <laughs> yeah. days and funnily yeah. enough and this is totally coincidental but i had done a very similar thing this is the first week that i'm, I'm not doing it so for the past mm six weeks not including this one i was i had this fitness shoot where i needed to get down to a low body fat percentage okay in doing so i didn't mean to but i cut out all processed food so i was eating wow. sweet potato a uh, bit of veg mm. and chicken pretty much every day mm. for six mm. weeks mm. like four or five meals a did day did you lose your will to live or did you <laughs> i lost my will to live it was it was terrible uh but i i for the first um couple of weeks i felt great yeah. The last couple of weeks, I felt terrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was also making... Well, that was in a calorie deficit, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but I was making the food uh, from scratch. So it was... I hadn't done proper meal prep for years. Mm. And it made me think a lot about that. And when I saw your uh, no ultra processed mm. uh, thing, I, I pretty much watched all the videos on, <laughs> on that specific one. Yeah, yeah. How was that challenge for you? And, and what did you learn from doing no ultra processed foods? That was fascinating because it was an idea. So I'd read... Chris Van Tulliken's recent book, Ultra Processed People. Mm -hmm. And that's all about ultra processed foods, what they are, <clears throat> what the emerging science around them is, sort of, uh, you know, how they proliferate in society and all these kinds of things. And then there was a panorama, a BBC panorama program about the same subject. And on there, they'd done this thing where they'd got a pair of twins because twin studies in science are sort of like really significant mm. because you've got two sort of i think genetically more or less identical beings and you can do a different thing to one and to the other and the differences um you know because their genetics are basically the same it means that it's the actual action or activity they're undertaking that will determine in theory the the, the, the outcome so it, it's they're good to study twins but They'd given one twin a diet of ultra-processed foods and one a diet of no ultra-processed foods and looked at the difference in health markers. And I'd seen that people had done this kind of thing. And I've got to be honest with you, the idea of just eating ultra-processed foods, I didn't really want to do it because I, I think, oh, okay, I might just feel rubbish if I do that. It just doesn't sound like a fun thing to do. But I thought, well, I can eat just, uh, I can completely avoid ultra-processed foods. So like, what's it actually like just to say no to all ultra-processed foods and just you know, live like that. And for me, I work from home. I have quite a bit of time to make my own food. So it wasn't going to be the biggest jump to do that. So I thought, yeah, I'll do this. I can do this. I can document it on social media. We can see how this is. And 
it started off quite easy, to be honest with you. You know, it's very easy to make breakfast, lunch, dinner at home, you know, if you've, if, especially if you've got time, you know, like I did. But then it all started to fall apart the moment I left my house. Mm-hmm. That was the thing. Yeah. It was, I think the first time I failed was I met my girlfriend and we were just walking down Tottenham Court Road and it was lunchtime. I was like, hey, should we grab a bite to eat? And there's a little vegan cafe just along Tottenham Court Road. And I was like, hey, let's just jump in there and grab something. We just ordered what sounded like the most lovely home-cooked food. It was like butternut squash and lentils and chickpeas and, all, you know, and it's an open, you know, you can see the kitchen. It just looks like lovely homemade vegan food. But I hadn't realized until I was eating it that they'd put some chili sauce on top that was like a Sriracha-style chili sauce that had come out of a bottle that was an ultra-processed chili sauce. And so I'd eaten that without even thinking about it. And that technically was an ultra processed food. So I failed within like a week or so, just without even thinking. Mm. There were many other occasions like that. Someone like my niece offered me a Magnum, you know, like my brother, I was at my brother. He's like, oh, hey, do you want like a bacon sandwich or something from this like hot dog van? We're out at an event or something. You know, these kind of things where you don't really want to say no because it's a Mm. social occasion. So, yeah, it made me realize, though, how prolific the moment you leave your home, the moment you sort of relinquish control over your diet and the moment you let other people you outsource your diet to other people you let other people whether that's a restaurant or a cafe or a food manufacturer once you let someone else create the food for you then you're probably going to end up eating ultra processed food and that's not a bad thing if as long as your entire diet isn't that i think that's where the problem comes and what's the definition of an ultra processed food versus a processed food. So a processed food, well, it's based on a on the Nova categorization, which was developed by a Brazilian scientist called Carlos Monteiro. And you got four categories. Category one and two are basically your raw ingredients, your things like meat, fish, potatoes, veg, fruit, etc. All just like whole foods mm. that come as they are. Category two are things that have had a tiny bit of processing done. So there'll be like flour, sugar, honey, you know, all those kind of Mm -hmm. ingredients, oils, I guess. That's category two. Then category three is processed food. And that category is when there's like two or three ingredients have been combined to make a food. So, for instance, traditional sourdough bread is processed Mm -hmm. because it's flour, water, salt. Um, Fermented foods would be just processed cheese i think most cheese might just be processed so a lot of basic foods that you can eat as they are are just processed and then ultra processed i mean there's a few ways of describing it the real the real definition is quite long but essentially they're going to contain things that you won't find in the supermarket that you wouldn't find in your home kitchen sort of emulsifiers and stabilizers and all these kinds of ingredients they're generally going to have quite long ingredients lists but yeah one of the main things that they say is it's yeah it will contain an ingredient that you're just simply not going to use at home or yeah or you can't read or yeah. understand what that ingredient is, <laughs> no idea what it is. <laughs> i did this challenge it's going to be on youtube in a, in a week or two where i was comparing how easy it is to eat potatoes right yeah. i did two different types of potatoes one of them is thinly sliced roasted in olive oil with salt mm-hmm. and the other is pringles Okay. Yeah. <laughs> They're both potatoes and I balanced them nutritionally. A hundred calories of each contain exactly the same amount of protein, fat, carbohydrate and salt. So exactly balanced. Yeah. And it was just how easy is it to eat each one? Well, you know, and of course it was really easy to eat lots of Pringles. Mm. And then looking at the ingredients, it's like, well, look, I mean, potatoes is the number one ingredient, but then, I mean, I think they contain about three different types of fat. You know, it's like, 
and they don't feel greasy, right? Because yeah, you pick up yeah. Pringles, if you eat them, they, they feel like powdery almost. Yeah. But when I cooked potato with the same amount of fat, they were swimming in olive oil. Like yeah. literally, there was olive oil like wow. rolling around in wow. the bottom of the tray because they use fat. Sorry, I'm just <laughs> dying. No, no, yeah, okay. they, they use things like palm oil and hydrogenated fats mm. that are solid at room temperature. So they, sort of, they, they basically deconstruct the potatoes into a powder and then use lots of other ingredients to reconstruct it into this shape. And yeah, the, the fats that are solid at room temperature, so they don't appear oily in the same uh, way that olive oil does at room temperature. Yeah. Anyway, it was just like, yeah, it, it was really interesting sort of looking into the ingredients. That's, is, isn't it crazy how we're kind of at this dichotomy of the Pringles taste way nicer and our body is telling us that that is the one to go for. But yeah. at the same time, it probably is a lot worse for you than just mm. having the potato. But our body doesn't, like we know that, but mm. our body doesn't seem to know that. It wants to take that palm oil. That's mm. what I've always found really interesting. We gravitate towards those kind of things because it makes sense to me that if something is fattier, our body sees it as a greater energy source and mm. therefore wants to take on more. If it's sugar, it's instant energy. So your body thinks, okay, that's a good source of food. But mm. things like that, that the palm oil and the weird ingredients mm. in there that you don't really know, Mm. I find that so interesting as to why our bodies think that that's what we should reach for. Mm, yeah. Even though we know like momentarily we, later we're going to feel worse from it rather mm. than better. And they're so engineered specifically to deliver that. You know, obviously the flavors, Pringles, I mean, they're definitely like my kryptonite as in the, the flavorings are just next level. I don't know mm. how they get it so perfect. But even the shape of a Pringle is the shape so that when you put it on your tongue, yeah. it make, creates maximum contact with the taste <laughs> receptors on your tongue. So you get the maximum hit of flavor when you put it in your mouth compared to say like a normal crisp. They're designed to give us this real sort of hit of flavor. But for some reason, our bodies uh, also find it easy to overconsume them. Maybe that's because they've been deconstructed into these different powders and constituent ingredients then sort of put back together. So maybe there's something to do with fiber and things like that. But or the food matrix, but they've been designed in such a way that our bodies would find it easier to consume sort of three, four, five hundred calories more of Pringles than of potatoes mm. of the same. Was the fiber content the same when you did the potatoes I'm not sure and Pringles? I need to check that actually. I didn't go that because that could be something. The fiber makes you feel more full, so therefore you you want less of it. Mm. Our body has like an inbuilt ratio of fiber to carb to protein so it knows mm. that okay if this amount of carbohydrates coming in i need to take more to get more of the fiber i mean this it goes back to there's a study by kevin hall from 2019 and it's probably one of the best pieces of research we've got about ultra processed foods because it's still quite an emerging area and we don't really know the mechanisms that cause different things so we don't really know why we overeat them we do know we do overeat them but Kevin Hall did this experiment in 2019 where he got, I think it was 20 or 30 people. It's quite hard to do this kind of experiment, basically, because it involves putting people into a laboratory for a month. And okay. it's quite hard to do that, basically. Yeah. A lot of ethics yeah. questions. So, um, yeah, the Nazis, unfortunately, sort of stopped us from doing more of that. But no. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of papers out there that we haven't seen from that period because they had no ethics. They would do whatever they wanted. It twins, was the like you said, go back to the twins. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was the Nuremberg trials that put in the modern ethics yeah. around research that stopped us from sort of locking human beings into sort of things. And that was, the, that was based on the, the Germans, but there's loads of papers in Russia really? that we don't even have access to. Yeah, I mean, wild times for sure. That'd and Korea probably as well, probably in North Korea. 
Yeah. Who knows what they're they're experimenting yeah, on not, over there? Yeah. Difficult um, sort of thing to do these days, but mm. obviously it's, it's significant when we can study the effect of food on people by actually having them in a sort of in a restricted environment. And so what Kevin did was he got a bunch of people for thirty days and he split them in half and he fed one half of the group a diet that was home cooked food and he fed the other half a diet that was only ultra processed food mm-hmm. and the two diets were nutritionally matched so they'd specifically done the same thing matched it across all the macronutrients i think actually he might have matched it in fiber as well okay i think yeah i'd have to double check that so anyway so he did that 14 days uh, oh and it was, was it ad libitum so they can eat as much as they want so for 14 days they just eat breakfast lunch and dinner halfway through he switched the groups around so the ones who were eating the whole food diet the home cooked diet they started eating the ultra processed diet and vice versa so by the end of it he had like 30 days and everyone had eaten each diet for half of the you know for half of the time uh, and he had their entire intake for the 30 days and he found on average each person had consumed 500 calories more per day on the ultra processed food diet so it was just simply people just ate more and it wasn't like they were eating like twinkies and pringles you know they were the, the ultra processed meals were sort of shop bought lasagnas you know or, you know like things that we think of as probably healthy processed foods you mm. know like whole whole meals it wasn't just junk food basically yeah. it was things that looked reasonable so we you know that, that's a really good piece of evidence because it's a good study that demonstrates that with ultra processed foods we just eat yeah. too many calories for some reason that is fascinating but mm. also kind of makes sense right i think intuitively we all sit here and go yeah i'd eat more pringles than i would potatoes because i think you'd, maybe you'd get bored of the potatoes as well maybe that's part <laughs> of it you're like oh yeah i don't want another boiled well potato. you know what happened right so i did, when i did the potatoes like this is crazy so i did the potatoes i was stuffed stopped right that's it so stop there i put the leftover potatoes in a container put them in the fridge the next day I'd look at them and I'd be like, don't want any more of those. Mm, like I mm, did yeah, too much. Yeah. The Pringles, I ate a load of them. There were some left over again. I put them in a bowl. Two hours later, I walked through the kitchen and went, oh, I'll have a few of those. <laughs> I ate more of them like two hours later. And yeah. then I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I literally, I'd, I'd eaten 1,700 calories worth of Pringles. And then two hours later, I wanted more. Explain that. Well, maybe in years to come they'll be able to, but right now, it's, but I think intuitively we all kind of know that in the back of our head that we would do that. And uh, I certainly had the same experience when I was doing this um, this meal prep thing because I'd black and white said no to all of the stuff that you'd normally reach for. Mm. And I knew I could only eat certain things. I just intuitively found myself eating a bit less. Uh, do you know Eddie Abu from TikTok? He's doing, he's doing quite well on that. And they rings a bell. Yeah, what does he's, he do? he's a uh, he was an ex bodybuilder. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know. you know the guy yeah, where he's like, he's "This is shit. This is shit." He and does. his whole thing is like, everything is bad for you unless it's yeah, unless it's handmade. And he does talk crap a bit though. He's very like uh, like the appeal to nature. A lot yeah. of his stuff, like eat natural fruit, which is. I mean, generally natural stuff is good for us, but the way he goes about it is, I think sometimes he sort of pretends science doesn't exist as mm. well. You know. Do you think that's part of like trying to give the shock factor on TikTok? You know how people can get more views by mm. by saying things a bit more controversial. Or do you think he genuinely has that opinion? No, I think he genuinely does because yeah. he, he the way I see it is he's doing the yeah appeal to nature, common sense sort of thing. He's like saying, don't have a protein shake, eat eggs. Eggs are better for you. He often, you know, which is like, well, actually, you know what? I can't argue 
with that on a sort of on a common sense level, it's generally better to eat like a whole food diet. To so if you're going to get your protein from, say, yeah, a protein shake that arguably is an ultra processed food versus a whole food like you know chicken or eggs or you know lentils or something, then well, no, that I mean that sounds perfectly reasonable to say that. But I think often the way he justifies it, it doesn't stand up to mm. sort of critical analysis. Mm. I think that's what's once you go into the next level. So I don't think he's doing it for shot factor. And I think he believes what he says because yeah. definitely he sees it as he's doing sort of good work helping people. And I think, you know, on, on a basic level, if he if he gets people to eat more whole foods, well, then that that's a good thing. But yeah, I think his science is a bit shaky. <laughs> I saw a graph that I, I can't remember which video it was, but one of your videos had a graph of, um, and it was like people that eat, different types of meat like the quantity that they had mm. and the top level of people that ate the most meat i think was 100 grams per day um, yeah it was like 100 plus I think. yeah it was, it was 100 plus and i looked that. at that and i thought good god i'm so when i did this um diet plan i was mm. having 500 grams of chicken per day wow 500 grams of sweet chicken. potato and and veg and that was basically the diet so 500 grams of chicken is about 100 grams of protein roughly mm, 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 um, mm. and i was trying to get like 150 170 grams of protein in mm. am mm. i or was i eating oh. too much protein and what is that doing to the planet and the supply chain of how much should mm. people be eating in terms of meat so that particular study you're referring to was a recent oxford university study looking at the environmental impacts of different diets so uh, meat eaters of different levels yeah the 100 grams and above 50 to 100 and i think under 50 grams per day pescatarian vegetarian and vegan diets and that was a purely environmental study so it was looking at greenhouse gas emissions related to each one i think it also considered water use and a couple of other metrics so when we look at food from a purely environmental perspective, the measures that we have, meat is the most environmentally damaging food that we can consume. As usual, it's a complicated subject. If we look at the efficiency of meat, uh, red meat is the least efficient converter of... So if we take animal feed, basically you take animal feed and you turn it into cow and then we eat cow. So... Uh, cows are the least efficient converter of feed, as in you need sort of like 16 sort of kilograms of feed for one kilogram of beef. And chicken is like the most efficient. So I think it's two or four to one. So it's much, much like four, four, eight times more efficient. However, this is where it gets complicated because also cows can eat grass, which humans can't and no one else really can. So if you put a cow in a field to eat grass, then it's not eating soy from South America. It's just eating grass that no one else eats. So then actually, well, that's quite efficient in some yeah. res some respects. Obviously, there's a lot of methane and things like that that come out of the cow as well. But then at the same time, um, you know, the manure from a cow is a really important fertilizer. And the effect they have on the soil health, like the way that they sort of trample the soil and the grass is really beneficial for soil health. So cows have, uh, they have a place within the, the environment of food and sort of with, within our food system. But the problem is, and this is why it gets really complicated, so I'm just going to sort of weave my yeah, way through this. Yeah. 
But the problem is, is when we look at big meta-analyses, so like when we look at huge studies and we go, right, let's take all of the major foods that are reached. Let's say we take 100 different foods from meat through to carrots and fish and fruits and whatever. And we'll work out the environmental impact of each of those 100 different foods. And then we can rank them and say, this is good and this is bad. What happens is we have to then draw on science around each individual food. So we go and find a study on mangoes over there and we find some studies on beef from South America and beef from Scotland and beef from Australia. And we draw on all these different other studies and bring them all into one place. And then we go, okay, what metrics do all of these studies have in common? So, okay, they all have greenhouse gas emissions. Great, well, we can compare that. Do they all compare soil health? No, they don't. So, okay, we, we can't necessarily compare that. So what happens is that any big meta-analysis that compares all different food groups will inevitably, inevitably miss some metrics relating to certain types of production. So in the case of cows, many of the beneficial qualities of cows often aren't captured in a meta-analysis. So farmers will always, especially British farmers, because British farmers generally say cattle is kept in quite a sustainable way relatively compared to other practices around the world. So British farmers will generally get upset about these big meta-analyses because mm. they've just got cows who are on the side of a hill where you couldn't grow or do much else. And it's a fairly sustainable way to raise livestock compared to, you know, sort of chopping down the Amazon and yeah. feeding them on soy. So, yeah, anyway, that's a very long-winded way of saying that it's kind of complicated. But still, nonetheless, by our current measures, meat still is the yeah. heaviest impact on the planet. So, yeah, 500 grams of chicken is a lot, by the way. That is. <laughs> I mean, it, it's. Uh, I, I will just say that's not my usual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was uh, for that six-week period of time. Yeah. I was trying to preserve as much muscle mass. The thing is, though, is in general, in a country like the UK, it's good to eat less meat. I mean, that's, that's my line on this. I'm not going to tell anyone to be vegan or to be vegetarian or whatever. But in general, if you're someone who consumes a reasonable amount of meat, it's always worth just looking at alternatives. Mm. You know, like well, well my my neighbour that put me onto you, uh, they they come over for dinner quite a bit, and they actually introduced us to the concept of these things and said, look, we do this red meat once every week or two. We do fish. We have a day where it's a day of the week where it's vegetarian, a mm. day of the week where it's vegan, um, and in general, we've just reduced our meat consumption and replace it with other things which is totally mm. doable you can make yourself a lovely mm. uh, vegetarian curry or something like that mm. there are there are alternatives you can get your macros in there if you're if mm. you're that way um, inclined mm -hmm. um, and it made us start to think a bit more outside the box i think mm. in this country as well like certainly was the case for me when i went to university it was like okay what do i do i'm a student pasta and chicken or mm. rice and chicken yeah, that yeah. was like all, all you all yeah. you could afford or get in and, yeah. and and you don't think about those things as much and then as we've gotten older and our household income's gone up you can be a bit more conscientious about what you're choosing mm. what would you mm. recommend in terms of red meat fish mm. veggie those kind of things for somebody that is very active mm. and is conscious about their their protein intake and Mm -hmm. um, what's, a, what's a good sustainable practice? So one of the things that I've been doing a lot recently, because, sort of, you know, I find it as challenging as anyone else, you know, we'll get set in our ways around mm. eating and stuff like that, is that I'm trying wherever possible to replace things like rice and pasta with things like lentils and chickpeas. So basically, because lentils and chickpeas, they've got plenty of carbohydrate in them. Mm. They've also got more protein in them, say rice and pasta has, I think. 
I'll have to check that, but I'm pretty sure. So, but subtle changes like that, they increase the amount of protein I'm getting in my diet without increasing the amount of animal-based mm. foods. So it requires experimentation though as well, because, you know, I have to kind of look for recipes, you know, it takes a bit of research and experimentation. So I, I think that's always a good thing is just look towards sort of pulses and legumes and things like that more when you're looking for like that sort of more bulky side of food, you know, like when you're thinking of carbohydrates, you know, we, yeah, just look more towards things like that. When it comes to red meat, really, we should ideally be looking to that as a bit of a treat, really, as a mm-hmm. bit of a, maybe have a steak now and again or whatever. It really isn't good because also this is the problem is that, you know, red meat is cheap for what it for the impacts it has on the planet so we should really try to avoid looking at red meat that beef in particular as being something we eat on a really really regular basis also i mean i think the evidence shows that from a health perspective eating too much red meat's not good for you anyway you think red and processed meats are two things that yes. the world health organization recommend against that whole world of people that are carnivore oh no <laughs> where it's where every meat oh. Is red or uh, these people that do like a, a steak a day okay, sort of thing? Um, I understand everybody's body is built differently. Mm. Everybody, some people have uh, different immune systems that are causing some sort of problem. What I don't know the the background of the Peterson situation, mm. but there is a whole thing at the moment about the carnivore diet and and people feeling great on this, but then their mm. blood work isn't great, and then in mm. the long run it's not great. Mm maybe what that what you've done with that carnivore diet is you've eliminated a lot of things it's an mm. elimination diet and perhaps mm. there were things within your diet mm. that you're eating which were causing you problems and the fact mm. that you've gotten rid of them has outweighed the benefit of not having a balanced mm. diet if that mm. makes sense i find it fascinating because there's multiple things in there it's, one thing is whenever we make a change in our diet which we believe is a healthy change then we generally feel good about it so so that's a psychological thing yeah exactly you know anyone Anyone who starts a diet or tries a new way of eating, they always feel great for the first week or two. It's just, yeah, purely psychological, I think. And then, like you say, the elimination aspect's really interesting as well. If you just eliminate everything and you just eat red meat, you know, then you could be getting rid of something else that's been problematic for you. I also believe, though, that people, when they do eat the carnivore diet, when they go full carnivore, that, you know, they talk about mental clarity and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of believe them. You know, I don't doubt that that's their experience. However, I'd love to see their blood work in 10 years' time if they stuck with it, you know, and see, like, right, really, where are we now? Have you had, you know, if you had uh, cardiovascular disease, if you know mm. what's going on here, or 20 years' time, what's going on? Because yeah. that's what the science points to is not that you're going to feel, not that you're going to sort of drop dead tomorrow if you just eat red meat all week, but it's that long term it yeah. could have a negative Im- impact on your health and i find it interesting there's a guy was it is it paul saladino is it carnivore md who touts himself as like this pure carnivore guy but he eats like vegetables and fruit and stuff i don't quite get oh, it okay. i don't know if he's wrote yeah. back on that recently or something they, well there's the, what is it there's different there's paleo there's um oh, keto and keto there's another one which is where you basically can have meat and then berries and and oh, okay. like a bit of veg or something okay Personally, yeah. my take on it is, and this is just my opinion, a well-balanced diet mm. with a low amount of ultra-processed foods will mm. take you a long way, mm. regardless of what your your individual mm. issues are. 
and combine that with a bit of exercise per day. Mm, mm. That's how you live a healthy yeah. life. It's not complicated. But the other reason why I could never do carnivore diet or even keto for that matter is because then I think I'd have to say no to cake for a birthday party. And like, <laughs> yeah. what kind of life is that? Well, this is this, we've got to think about the social aspect of food. Um, you, you, one of the greatest pleasures in my life is going mm. for a meal with my girlfriend and her family. It's such a social thing to do. If you're out at a barbecue mm. and you're having a burger, you're not mm. thinking about the macros at that point mm. or you're not mm. thinking about the environmental stuff necessarily if mm. you're at a barbecue having a burger. Mm. But you mm. are enjoying yourself, having a good time. And there's plenty of things on this planet that mm. we do which have a knock-on effect somewhere down the line. Um, mm. And it's about balance, getting a well-balanced mm. diet, a well-balanced lifestyle. When you start taking things to the extreme, to extremities, when you're you're cutting out all sources of carbohydrate or... I just, it, mm. long term, that can't be good, in my opinion. Well, the, the other really interesting thing that Carlos Montero, so the guy who did the NOVA, the ultra-processed food classifications, he did the wrote the National Dietary Guidelines for Brazil in around 2014. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of groundbreaking at the time because they took a social approach to food. In the UK, our National Dietary Guidelines are things like eat carbohydrates eat a little bit of protein that classic like, uh triangle pyramid yeah. we got sold on yeah well the, we, we have the plate in the uk the plate, in america yeah. they've got the triangle okay. the pyramid and in the uk we've got like the eat well plate mm -hmm. well it's eat well guide they call it now but it used to be the eat well plate it's quite that's quite prescriptive it's not i don't think that it's that easy to remember what it's telling you so i don't think it has that much impact in fact it's primarily aimed at businesses and larger organizations However, in Brazil, what Carlos Monteiro did was he wrote a list of about 8 to 12 guides, guidelines around how to manage your food in your life. And they were things like eat with other people, mm. um, avoid ultra-processed foods was one of them. Um, yeah, avoid excessive oils. Oh, yeah, prioritize home-cooked food. Mm. I, I remember that eating with other people was a really mm. interesting one that He's kind of thinking about our social health. Well, also maybe you, you take longer to have that meal as mm. well. You're not, there's something to eating a meal fast compared to slow, isn't there, digestively. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you, we're meant to eat when we feel relaxed and in good company. Mm. You, you, I, you might notice like if you're stressed out and you're eating something, then um, I'll, just, <laughs> I'll just shut the other door actually two seconds. To explain to somebody who maybe also hadn't heard the term food policy before, mm. in a summary of sort of two to three sentences, how mm. would you describe that to somebody? So food policy is really looking at how we manage food within a society. So food policy could consider, obviously, government policies around agriculture, around nutrition, around retail. So all of the things the government do that limit or change or regulate what food we can buy and how it's moved around within our society but it also exists within businesses businesses will have their own food policies that say they will only source from sustainable um you know producers and things like that so yeah food policy is effectively the way that food is managed within society as opposed to the specifics of its nutrition or or you know, the the the, de the details it's yeah about how we manage it yeah that makes sense. Mm. So when you did that master's, um, you you must have gone deep onto all these topics and you decided, yeah, I want to pursue this. Or did you go elsewhere? How, what, what was the story after the master's? So after the master's degree, it's a really interesting 
situation because there's no such job as what well, food policy doesn't create a single job you know uh, you can go all kinds of directions there were people on the course who were soil scientists there were people who worked in fine dining restaurants there were people who worked in retail I don't know, there was a neuroscientist or something like that. You know, people from all over, you know, someone from a marketing agency, you know, from all over the place that go in all different directions afterwards. So I came out and I was, I'd been doing my writing and photography beforehand. So I'd been doing a bit of food writing, getting some commissions there as well. And I was like, well, okay, what can I do with this? So I started doing a bit of writing and editing. So writing policy reports, these kinds of things, doing a little bit of research and editing because I'd been self-employed for 10 years by that point anyway, I was sort of just looking for more independent sort of freelance stroke entrepreneur style opportunities. And yeah, so I did a bit of freelance work like that. I actually went traveling as well. I took that opportunity and went off for like nearly a year and a half and wow. got, a, got a commission via a friend with National Geographic. We did a wow. piece in Ecuador about the world's most expensive chocolate so I wow. photographed oh, that. I saw a video on this on TikTok. Okay. Guy orders the world's most expensive chocolate. It comes in like this really crazy box. Oh, like a wooden car yeah, box. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember how much Co-ac. it was, but it was ridiculous. And then Yeah, probably about three hundred dollars or something like yeah, that. Four hundred. Yeah. They, they do different levels. I think the most expensive one might be three or four hundred dollars wow. for a for a normal size bar, basically. That's mental. Yeah. But also kind of cool at the same yeah. time. And the reason it's so expensive, because obviously it sounds like it's just clickbait, but mm. the reason it's so expensive is because they've identified the only genetically pure this sounds a bit like eugenics sorry i know but we're talking about chocolate trees here so what they did is they the the archaeological origins of chocolate making if that's the right way of phrasing it uh come from ecuador about four or five thousand years ago so they found like some stone pestle and mortar that's got traces of mm-hmm. cacao in it so they're like okay this is where people were first processing cacao into chocolate and that's the oldest recorded traces of chocolate processing in the world in Ecuador. So what they did was they found out what the sort of the DNA, uh, what chocolate that was, what species of chocolate cacao tree was being used four or 5,000 years ago. They then tested 50,000 cacao trees in Ecuador and they found seven that were genetically pure from the four or 5,000 year old ones. And they took those seven, they created like a nature reserve and they're growing more of them. So what they're actually doing is protecting the sort of genetic uh, origins of the oldest chocolate trees in the world. Wow. So that's what you're, you're not paying for sort of the chocolate, you're paying for the whole environmental well. nature yeah. reserve as well that sort of goes behind it. That, that yeah. is a very cool piece. And to be able to do that with National Geographic as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a great adventure. That's like every kind of reporter or <laughs> anyone's dream to, to be able to go to some exotic country yeah. and do a piece on... Uh, did yeah. you get to try it whilst you're out there? Yeah, we ate tons of the stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because we had we had to try it. So I was doing the photography, my friend, she was doing the words. And we went out for tasting experiences. We went to some restaurants, some high-end restaurants where they were using it. We were also placing that chocolate. So in Ecuador, chocolate is like the national food, basically. Mm-hmm. As a family, you would sit down and you would have... Uh, an Ecuadorian family would have chocolate caliente con queso which is hot chocolate with cheese in it so you get a a mug of hot chocolate and put like a soft white cheese in it the cheese goes gooey you dip some bread in but families like say a kid would come home from school and the family would have that in the same way we'd have a cup of tea so chocolate is part of ecuador's 
culture. Mm. So we were also eating everything that related to chocolate everywhere. So it was two weeks of basically <laughs> eating chocolate morning, noon, evening. And also because we, we visited other chocolate makers and the moment that you mention you're doing something for National Geographic, you know, people will literally give you their firstborn child. And you're not asking for it, but like literally if they if they get wind of what you're doing they'll be like take this so we were going to other chocolate producers and they were giving us goodie bags as well so basically i had two weeks i ate so much chocolate that sounds amazing is that not <laughs> the dream job yeah, i can't much, think of anything yeah. better yeah at the end of it i spent like about a week in a hammock just once we'd finished um just eating chocolate for a week and yeah wow it was amazing and then the swiss took that and tried to build a formula yeah, they've got to have the ch chocolate which is quite bitter and then the fat and the sugar and then the combination mm. judging mm. What, what do they do in ecuador do they add they must add a bit of fat and a, and a bit of sugar to make the chocolate so the uh, high-end chocolate they take the cacao pods uh, they're dried no, the fermented dried ground and so then you've got the cacao paste which has natural oils in it and then the expensive chocolate they'll add cane sugar i think into that to sweeten it a little bit and that's basically it i think two mm. ingredients oh, wow what happens is then cheaper chocolates like much cheaper chocolate if you just go and buy say basic dark chocolate from a supermarket in the uk it will probably have a different fat added to it and that's because uh cocoa butter oil whatever it is is quite an expensive oil so what they do is they separate it all out and then they reconstruct it with a cheaper mm. fat. So expensive chocolate normally has just, I think, two ingredients. And two so when we see these, has, has five. When we see these 80% or 85%, that's talking about the level of cocoa oil that they've kept in there? It's the sweetener. So that's why 100% uh See, I always get confused. So cacao and cocoa. Yeah, right. it's, yeah. I, I, as I far as I'm aware, the, I can't remember the the difference. As far as I'm aware, it's basically the same thing. But I'd have to double check that. I think it's just like a language thing. But in in South America, they say cacao. Cacao. Yeah. So it would be a hundred percent chocolate would be pure cacao. It'd be incredibly bitter. Ninety mm percent -hmm. just means they've added some sweetener to make it sweeter. They've not added anything else. So I think that just means it's ten percent. Sugar. Of the fat, or no, I think added, no. I think okay. there's 10% sugar, sugar, maybe. You know, do you know the brand I'm talking about where they have like 75 and then 80? I think it's green and black, yeah, green and black. And then, a lot of them, they, yeah, they have, they have the different number on the top. Mm. I've always wondered what the what the difference is, yeah, yeah. But I, certainly, the taste you can take. I'm quite a fan mm. of dark, dark chocolate, yeah, yeah, I like yeah, that. Same. Much same. prefer it to the milk or the, the other. Yeah. The other bits that they add in, yeah, big time. Big and I, time. at one point, we'd ordered um, pure cacao. Mm. chunks mm. and i was having that as a snack oh, really yeah it... very bitter yeah but, yeah yeah, yeah. Um, you like that yeah, yeah. I, I felt like it hit the if i was craving chocolate i mm. could still have that and feel like i'd it. had it um oh, sometimes right. a bit of drizzle of honey on top yeah and some yeah, raspberries nice. yeah, yeah. and the combination of that i it was That's nice it was almost as though you're having this high quality well you um, kind of are you're making your own if you're just sweetening pure cacao then yeah mm. but it's really interesting so i did a taste test on youtube so i bought i think four different chocolates so i bought some toac mm -hmm. but i bought their like entry level one it's only like 30 quid for a bar or something is like that, that the really expensive brand that yeah yeah the 300 quid yeah you can yeah. buy it in harrods but their their entry level one i think is 30 quid for a small bar so it's obviously still 
massively expensive for a bar of chocolate. But I bought one of those. I went to Selfridges and bought like a just a nice artisanal mm-hmm. sort of bar, which is about five, six quid, something like that. And then Green and Blacks and then Tesco own brand, 70% dark chocolate. And I did a blind taste test with a bunch of people. Almost overwhelmingly, the most expensive one was the least popular. Really? Yeah. And the Tesco was generally the most popular. Is that because people's taste is accustomed to that kind of thing? or I think partly. I think it could be a little bit like when you think of any food, I think that to appreciate a more expensive or a higher quality food, you generally have to learn to appreciate it. Mm. So I think there might be a little bit of that in there. Mm. But also I think that one of the really important things that goes back to the ultra processed food situation is that the Tesco 70% dark chocolate is made up of, I think, five ingredients, including flavorings. Mm -hmm. It's got flavorings added to it. So that's been engineered to melt in a different way to the expensive one because the expensive one doesn't melt in the same way. And, and I think that's because the natural oils in cacao melt at different temperature to the uh, oils that Tesco have used. So the Tesco one, I think, melts more easily in your mouth. They've used flavoring. So they've engineered it just mm. to taste probably a bit more chocolatey as well. So they've, yeah. they've, they've, you know, sat in a lab and they've made that into a really chocolatey dark chocolate. And everyone loved it. I, I saw a video and I can't... I. I will butcher this, but it was along the lines of they've at, there's a chemical that you can add to something which basically fries your taste buds to excite them. It makes oh, them, really? so you could put that. The lady said you could put that on dog shit and you could like, eat it, and wow. and your your brain would mistake something. it for something really exciting. Wow! And they they add that to foods to make your your brain yeah, feel like it's it's really good. Um, That's crazy. But what they can yeah. do now in 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 a lab is absolutely remarkable Um, it really so people pulled me up on this when i did the podcast with Bryn Mm. because i said that they're adding chemicals it's basically in a lab and you're adding chemicals and someone a few people on tiktok were saying things Mm -hmm. like uh they're not chemicals it's not chemicals that they're adding to it Mm -hmm. i'll be honest i don't know exactly but when i think of things like e-numbers or artificial flavorings Mm. or things that are I, I don't understand what it is because there are 40 letters in a yeah. single word. Yeah. In my head, I'm thinking that that's a lab-made chemical that mm. has been extracted from something. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know much about that? Well, I know a little bit. And the reason why we generally avoid saying that sort of referring to ingredients as just chemicals is because water is, was it hydrogen dichloride? Not dichloride, di- <laughs> di- H- H2O. H2O, <laughs> was it dihydrogen? Anyway, but the point being is it's chemicals. You know, it's, mm. it's, you know, it's two things from the periodic table that have come together to make water. So everything is a chemical. That's why it's, you know, we, we're kind of looking more towards what chemicals have an effect on us in what ways. And... It's also sort of the dose as well. So water in a moderate dose is fine. But, you know, if you get too much water, you drown and it kills you. So, you know, water can be fatal. So it's this sort of kind of hold the, the dose makes the poison, you know. Yeah. I think uh, like my basic ignorant assumption is that if it's been created somewhere in a lab, mm. then our bodies aren't used to knowing how to process it properly. And then... Mm that causes some kind of issue. But again, like you said, it mm. depends on the dose and th- mm. there are so many factors involved mm. with that one. 
Going back to your journey in the food mm, policy, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> you went on this amazing trip to Ecuador yeah. with National Geographic, mm. and then what's the time frame now between there and when you started on TikTok and your TikTok journey? Because at the moment, TikTok is is popping off for you, and yeah, yeah, people yeah. are loving your content. Yeah. Well, that's actually an amazing link because I actually started my TikTok account in Ecuador. Did you? Funnily enough, yeah. That was back in 2019. So pre-COVID, just before. Pre-COVID, yeah. yeah, 2019. And I posted a few videos. I then, uh, I stayed in Colombia for like three months and I was just, I was doing a little bit of freelance work and I was sort of trying to flesh out an idea I had for a book and I was doing a few things and I, I started making just a few silly videos on TikTok because I was just trying to get a handle of how the app worked. And they were kind of, they were, some of them were food related. And I had, I made this, this silly, silly video with an egg and that kind of got 50,000 views. And I was like, oh, wow, it's like, I mean, at the time that was kind of like mind blowing metrics. I'm mm. like, it's, it's gone viral. Like, you know, I wanted to, what I wanted to do. So basically, as I mentioned earlier, I found food policy fascinating. I thought this is a really, really interesting topic. And everything about it I thought people should know more about but I also realized there was no one out there who was really talking about it and no one well let me rephrase that no one who was really talking about it in a way that was relatable for the wider general public lots of people are out mm. there talking about food policy and I don't want to deny those people or their platforms but there, there didn't seem to be like a public facing sort of face of food policy so I was like there must be a way to do this so that it's interesting and exciting for people because I know that the core subject is interesting. Maybe in 2021, again, this kind of on-off relationship, but each time I went back to it, I found a new way to talk about food policy, a new way of presenting information and getting more and more views. And then, yeah, by the end of 2021, I was like, you know what, I just need to stick with this and just yeah. do it consistently. So since the end of 2021, I've posted like every week without fail. And I have to say, I think you summed it up really nicely there, but you've managed to make a topic which probably not many people know too much about or might find boring or mm. goes over their head. You've managed to turn it into a palatable mm. uh, topic that anybody can look at and find enjoyable and interesting. And the way that mm. you make these challenges, the, the content that you're putting on TikTok, mm. it, it's brilliant. Even someone that is into that industry such as myself and, and my neighbour, I, I would think probably know a little bit more than the general public about about food and food policy. Mm. It was even eye-opening to us as mm. well. So so thank mm. you for that. Oh, and I really cool. appreciate the, well, the work that you're doing. Yeah, and it, this is the interesting thing because I've reflected on it. Now I've reached a point where you're know, getting like five to 10 million views on TikTok a month and I've sort of reflected on it and I'm like, it is by design. You know, it was by trial and error. And so... If we rewind to yeah, like late 2021, where I had this on-off relationship where I'd post and I'd stop posting, it was all part of like a creative, iterative process of trying something, it doesn't work. Try something else, it does work. Mm. Try and do that thing again, it doesn't work the next <laughs> yeah. time around. Like what the hell's going on here then? <laughs> you know, so it was a constant iteration. But then it's very interesting because, you know, when I'm talking with other creators, I, I've basically got my own niche. Mm. Like there's no one else who does what I do. You know, there's obviously lots of say nutrition influencers. There's lots of, uh, you know, recipe influencers. There's lots of people who create content around those. But when it comes to food policy, it's like <laughs> there's no one else mm. doing it. And yeah, I think, you know, it, it's easy. It's easy to think like the reason I say this, I think sometimes 
it's easy to think, oh, I just got lucky. But then when I look back, I'm like, actually, no, it was a creative process to get there, which linking into the podcast a little bit, you know, but it was that sort of trial and error, just keep trying, keep trying. And then now I've got so many, well, I've learned the hard way. I've got so many strategies and techniques to build content that I sort of very much have structure to what I do, which mm. is why I can produce like five TikToks a week, you know, without too much trouble, because now I've really, yeah, sort of developed my creative process and my method to yeah. be able to deliver regularly, which yeah. I never had at the start, which is why I think probably burnt out all the time. Right. How long has it been since you did that master's? Well, I graduated in 2018. So, so yeah, five years. Five years. And the icing on the cake is your, your TikTok almost, because mm. that's mm. where all the eyes are in terms mm. of your, your journey to get there. Mm-hmm. It's probably the TikTok which has given you the most exposure to spread your message and spread your passion and interest. Is, uh, TikTok's probably the most creative app you can be on yeah. at the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely gives you a lot of freedom to try whatever you want. I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting environment like that to yeah, yeah experiment. And yeah, and also, you know, I think I was very much finding my way from graduating from the master's degree. I was always looking to do something a bit creative, you know, but it was always narrowing down to find, uh, you know, find the thing. And so now, you know, with YouTube as well, trying to expand on that and, you know, there's other ideas and things like sort of TV show ideas and there's, but that sort of, yeah, that public facing side of the Mm. food system is very much where I want to direct my energies over the coming. And you've got to, you've got to be the right person for that job because it could easily be some guy in a lab coat with glasses and like mm. and talking about all these like long names and and sort mm. of and people twitch off so quickly mm. so yeah. you have to have that mm. presenter aspect to you yeah because you are a presenter yeah. on tiktok when you're doing these mm. videos you are presenting a topic to people yeah you're combining a whole bunch of skills and you yeah i think that you, ha- you have to be that person that specific person with those specific skills because yeah even if someone did try to compete with you they might not have those other skills yeah and it's yeah and that's that's the kind of the luck element luck or well or, or just finding the right you've honed in on, on what you yeah 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 you, you can't necessarily do every you can't always be that person but if you hone in and find yeah. what person you are then you find the thing that fits. That's why you've always got to experiment. And, you know, like with the process of getting there, I I always get this huge sense of relief when I quit something because I've been trying to find a career path. So since doing that master's degree, so that was kind of like a complete change of career, really. I've been looking for, you know, what is the career that will work for me? And so I've tried lots of different things along the way. There have been lots of little initiatives. I've started up little side businesses and other ideas and publications and blah, 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 blah. And there's all these other things. And But I always feel this great sense of relief when I quit something. So when I said, right, I'm not doing food photography anymore, it didn't entirely make sense. But I knew deep down that I didn't want to be a food photographer for the rest mm. of my life. I knew that that was something I didn't really want to wake up and do that every day. So... It was quitting for the right reason so that I had more space, time, energy to focus on other things. Stopping doing something because you know that it's not the direction you want to go in. It's one of the most sort of uh, relieving, uh, like freeing things to do. That's so relatable. And I use this analogy. I like to call it leapfrogging. Mm. And in order to leapfrog in order to sort of level up to where you want to go with your career Mm. you have to shut a few doors Mm, as well mm. because it forces you to then look elsewhere Mm, Um, mm. and when I started this journey for me as a performer in in this industry I started right at the bottom as I was busking in London just on on like 
like Covent Garden or yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, under the London Eye. Yeah. And I got to the point where I thought, if I'm going to progress, I can't rely on this as my primary form of income. I need mm. to shut it off to force myself to get to the next thing. Okay. And what you were describing about quitting that mm. certain thing and the relief that it comes with, yeah. I think it, for me, it felt like this, okay, now I can open the door or I can leapfrog mm. to the next thing. Um, and mm. it frees up that bandwidth in your head what headspace. Was, what was the next level from busking? So when I started busking, I was getting gigs. I, I, people would come up to me and say, oh, do you have a card? Oh, okay. Can I book you for a wedding? Yeah, yeah. Can, I, can I book you for my restaurant? And mm. so the iteration for me was it, it was busking, and then I phased into more uh, private gigs and restaurants mm. in London, and I mm. phased out the busking. But was you, were you scared that you would lose your sort of your lead funnel if you quit the busking. I was we, scared of that and yeah. I was scared because that was my primary form of income. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. There was a number of things. So yeah. But I every stage of this leapfrogging process, mm. I've had that fear and I've learned to embrace that fear as mm. okay, it will force you to level up. Mm, mm, so I mm. phased more into the restaurants and the private functions, mm. phased out the busking, and then I was only doing the private functions and restaurant mm. gigs. Mm. Then I started to get that became my lead funnel. Mm. So then from those gigs, I started to get a higher client that would come along and go, maybe this guy is good enough to play in the members clubs. Mm. So then I started to phase out the restaurant mm. and those kind of things. Yeah, the low paying. Or the phased low into the, yeah. the, the uh, members clubs. And then from the members clubs, that became my funnel. Yeah. So then my business model became uh, high-end clientele. Yeah, so yeah. I started to perform for royalty, for celebrity. Wow. Um, and then I phased yeah. out the, the members clubs and mm. I was in this circle of like performing for celebrities basically oh, oh, and then cool. flying all around the world performing to like oh. the shakes in Dubai and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then from from those things I I had a CV now mm. so what I did was I scrapped all the busking all the like those things off the CV mm. and all I put on there was my high-end clients but my mm. residencies in the the Dubai Opera House or theatres mm. across the world and that becomes the selling point and then from mm. there I now that's what, what, what I market towards and that got me the jobs in the TV and film mm. and, and being commissioned by Disney to do it, do songs for them. And There's a few really interesting things there that I kind of like really relate to. And so, yeah, the, the quitting things or, yeah, the leapfrogging, I, I found it was a really um, mental, a headspace thing. Mm. So if I'm trying to do four things, let's say I'm sort of trying to, start a publication, I'm trying to do my freelance work, I'm trying to do social media and I've got some other initiative, I've got four things I'm doing. Like, And let's say for me that really um, that's too much, yeah. There might be one of those things where I spend like one hour a week on it, yeah. Like, so if I looked, if I, if I logged all my time that I spent at my desk, I might find that I only spent one hour a week on that thing. But for some reason, that one hour weighs far more heavily on my mental space than the time taken to work on it does. Maybe I'm thinking about it. Maybe I've got stress and anxiety around it. Maybe when I go to bed at night, it's kind of like floating around in my head. So I found that quite often quitting something, whether it's just a, yeah, like a small little side thing I'd started, it often just created a lot more mental peace to focus on the other three things. Yeah. So yeah, and often it wasn't that it was overwhelming me or anything like that, but it just, just gave everything else room to breathe. Mm -hmm. And then also what happened, which is the last point you touched on there, is for a while my LinkedIn looked like I was doing everything. You know, I would have looked at it and gone like, 
either this dude's Superman or he's spread too thin, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like, and I don't think, you know, so either, neither of those are going to happen. He's not Superman, so he's probably spread too thin. So, you know, I was like, uh, started a nonprofit with someone and yeah, I was, uh, started this publication, a website, which again was a little side project with someone. I was doing my freelance work with a university and I also had my consultancy and I was doing social media. So there were probably five things I'd put on my LinkedIn. And then if I applied for a role, they'd be mm. like, no, this dude hasn't got mm. any time to do anything. Like, why would we give it to him? Yeah. And now it's like cutting all those things away. Once I cut everything away and then I look and then I'm like, oh, well, now it looks like I know what I'm doing. Yes. Yeah. Because all those five things may have been good for my ego because I'm like, oh, I've got a nonprofit or whatever, blah. But in reality, it just made me look like I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. Oh, so I think there's that's such a good point. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Yeah, there. yeah, and it was true because I didn't yeah. because I was trying things out. That's what I was doing. The nonprofit thing was a great idea. And in fact, my partner in that, she's still doing it. She's pursuing it. And it's definitely her avenue. And it's great that she's doing that still. It just wasn't the right thing for me. And but I had to try it to find mm -hmm. out to realize it wasn't the right thing. So would you say what what's the kind of if we're talking about these big projects and things that you're going to put on your CV, what do you think is the optimum number? Is it is it three? Is it three to five? Is it one thing that you want to specialize in? I think that you've just got to have one thing that you're really good at. I, I really think it's as simple as that because like, okay, so I do social media now and I, at the start of this year, I was like, right, I'm going social media this year. That's it. I'm going to slowly move away the other sort of food policy consultancy work and just focus only on social media and i feel that's been really clarifying mm. so i can do food policy consultancy work still but that's very much secondary so i think it's okay to have mm. other interests and side things but i think at the end of the day when people look at your linkedin or your cv or whatever they've got to understand mm. what it is you do primarily and it's that's just one thing Oh, you've made me really think. I think there's I, what I really like about this podcast is is every so often someone says something that will probably like impact my life. <laughs> and what you've just said there is one of those things that mm. I will take away and implement into my life because mm. I think that's so important. And I think a lot of people listening can take that on board as well. Cutting out, have an assessment of write down everything you do, mm. look at everything, assess everything, and and think. What's really working for me? Mm. What is kind of working and I could do without, but it's taking up a lot of headspace. Mm. And having the courage to drop those things and focus on the things that mm. are working and getting ahead mm. and having one overriding thing that people know you for. Mm. Because instantly when you think Gavin Wren, you think food mm. policy. Mm. And everyone has to have that selling point, don't they? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And you can even, you know, if you're juggling things, because like, for instance, I'm over the last few years, I've had to juggle lots of things through necessity because I need to pay the bills and I need to live. So, you know, if something's paying me some money, I might need to carry on doing it because I need the income while I sort of segue into the next phase. You know, like you were saying earlier about leapfrogging, it's always a bit, I always find it's a slightly messy mm -hmm. sort of boundary between the different levels. It's not just like you wake up one day and suddenly you've yeah. got a massive contract. And so that's what I've found anyway. But you can play down those things like so for instance i had a contract that ended in may this year i was working with the university i'd worked with them for quite a long time it had become a relatively small part of my work but i kept that off of my uh, linkedin yeah at the end because it was kind of irrelevant because yeah, yeah. it was some work that i did just to help and 
it was related to food policy. Um, it was the Food Research Collaboration, which is part of the Center for Food Policy. So it was related to what mm -hmm. I do. But nonetheless, the work I was doing with them, I was doing sort of design layout work. And it was kind of irrelevant to where I want to be over the coming 12 That's months. That's another so really, really good point. I took it off my LinkedIn. That's another really, really good point. And to me, hearing that suggests that that is transferable across different industries because the same thing happens in the music industry. Mm -hmm. Even now, if I, let's just say somebody says, oh, can you do this gig? And it's not really the one I'd normally do. Or it's not mm -hmm. quite on brand or whatever, mm -hmm. but they're, they're paying the money for mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Then I'll do the gig, but I just won't advertise it on the yeah, social media. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. A, I think yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Yeah, absolutely. And then it looks more focused because that's the thing, isn't it? It's like the attention economy. It's a bit like making TikToks. Is people need to understand things very quickly, and that applies in the case of a TikTok. I've got to let people mm. know why they need to watch another sixty seconds of me talking. But the same same applies for CVs and LinkedIn and all those kinds of things. People when they see what you do, they've got to sort of know immediately what yeah. you're about. My friend and neighbor uh, put me onto you through your TikTok. Mm, mm. Um, so clearly whatever you're doing is working. You're reaching a lot of people. Mm. Um, but he's sent me a couple of okay. questions that uh, I said to him, look, I'm, I'm having Gavin on today. Uh, is there anything you'd like me to ask him specifically? And he okay. said, his name's Austin. And he Hi, said, Austin. so ultra processed green drinks and what your opinion is on that. Something like AG1, which I think is Athletic Greens and yeah. Clean Greens. Mm. They're supposed to be healthy, but they're also ultra-processed at the same time. So there's a confliction. There. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, there is. They're obviously created for convenience because I guess things like Athletic Greens is a way of getting lots of healthy foods in a very convenient drink. This is where the the study of ultra processed foods comes across a little bit of a, a split because by definition that would be an ultra processed food because it's made up of these individual compounds that have been sort of their extractions of foods and they're sort of recreated into this drink so by definition yes it is an ultra processed food however one of the arguments against the classification of ultra processed foods is that there are some things that are objectively healthy that are ultra processed foods for instance wholemeal bread is probably an ultra processed food. Bran flakes are probably ultra processed foods. And it's kind of hard to say that they're bad for you in any way. It's kind of hard to say that wholemeal bread, I mean, we've always thought of wholemeal bread as being a healthy food. And I think that they may fall into that category. So maybe they're you know, obviously nothing like, say, Pringles or whatever. And But where the gap in the science is, is when we deconstruct a food into these sort of separate compounds and then recreate it, mm. does that have a negative effect on our health or not? So even though it ticks the boxes nutritionally, it's got micro and macronutrients probably that tickle the nutrition boxes, does the way that it's being constructed, does that have a negative impact on how our body mm. receives that food? And that's a question that we can't answer at the moment because we don't have the science tell us. So time will tell. Um, and the uh, argument for it being bad for you is what we spoke about earlier, where perhaps your body doesn't know how to process it properly, or perhaps that yeah. perhaps it's about ratios with food. There's a thing called the food matrix. So if you take a your banana, I don't know too much about this subject, so I don't sort of like go out of my lane too much. But basically, there's a food matrix, which is the sort of the way a food is a natural food is sort of constituted and built that sort of holds everything together. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that when you make an ultra processed food, you destroy that food matrix, you get all these individual compounds and you put it back together. And that somehow this absence of the original food matrix 
mm. potentially has a negative effect. Is that similar to things like when people say the fiber packets the sugar and therefore mm. when you consume something like an apple, you get the fiber with it, mm. but if you have the apple juice, it's destroyed that fibrous encasing and, mm. and therefore eating six apples, automatically you think that's going to fill you up more than six blended apples in a drink, for example. I think it's it's along those kinds of lines, yeah. So there could be, that potentially, later down the line, we might see that breaking down a food matrix and putting it all together into something like Athletic Greens mm. is bad for you for a reason that we don't yet know. Yeah, or it's just not as good as just eating the original yeah. vegetables. You know, it could be, yeah, we just don't receive everything as yeah. well. Based on feeling as well, to me, if you were to drink a Coca-Cola with all the sugar and, and whatever else is in there, my body, after about an hour, feels worse. Mm. But maybe something like Athletic Greens, it doesn't feel as worse. So for me personally, I do like to do things based on how I'm feeling, not mm. not when I'm taking in the food, because that, can be, that can be misleading. If you're mm. having something with a lot of sugar, your body thinks, oh, this is great. At, th at that moment in time, you feel you're great. Mm. But actually, how do you feel two hours after the meal or something yeah. like that? And something like a green drink or a green smoothie, certainly anecdotally, I could say I feel better than I would had I had a Coca-Cola or, mm. or something like that. Well, yeah, if it's an, if it's the healthier alternative, yeah. then yeah, then that's, yeah, if it was Athletic Greens versus Coca-Cola, then, well, yeah, athletic, athletic Greens is going to be a good yeah. option. And, and the history tells us that often current day science later down the line is disputed anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think people get too hung up on trying to do the right thing, right? As in, they're like, oh, I need to go on this like new whole diet. I need to like change this whole thing. I need to stop eating meat completely. People like to sort of seem to go to absolutes and extremes when they feel they need to make a change. And we, we know from, I think, social science that when people make big, massive changes, they generally don't stick with them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like diets, you know, people go, oh, I need to lose some weight. So they go on this extreme diet and then six weeks later, they've given up. You know, so I think in all cases, whether it's environmental, financial, health or whatever, the, the most sort of powerful thing you can do is actually just like a, a little change mm. and and then stick with it. Well, Gavin, thanks so much for coming on. It's oh, been a pleasure. Me. It's been a pleasure yeah. chatting to you because uh, I've, I've certainly been looking forward to having this conversation. Mm, it's been great fun. Yeah. I Where can people find you on social media and online? So you can find me on TikTok, Instagram youtube if you just search my name gavin wren that's w-r-e-n you'll find me on any of those and yeah watch some of my videos and enjoy them and subscribe wonderful thanks so much <laughs> cool awesome thanks a lot nick